0: This is the Fuente podcast. Hello, hello. Here we are back again with Genesis 17. Last time we took a break, talked about depression. This time we're going to continue on with Genesis. Um and this next part we're going to get into where God will make his promise to Abraham once again. He's going to rename Abraham so Avram will become Abraham. And he's going to also institute the practice of circumcision. So we're going to talk about all those things. And I don't think this podcast will take as long as usual. Because the... uh... Yeah, well, let's just jump right in. When Avram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. So once again, we have a physical, like, anthropomorphic manifestation. I am God Almighty. Walk before me. That before me is lifnei. It means like to walk in the presence of. or Well, actually, so panim is your face. Lifnei is like walking in someone's face. But it, idiomatically, it means in Hebrew to... Here I'll read to you from from altar walk in my presence or before me in verse 18 is the same preposition Manifestly has the idiomatic sense of in your favor The verb is the same use for Enoch's walking with God But there the Hebrew preposition is actually with the meaning of this idiom is to be devoted to the service of So it appears to us as be devoted to the service of me uh, Faithfully and blamelessly so be faithful and blameless then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Uh, what's interesting here about this word greatly increase, rava, is um, that same word multiply where God is telling Adam in Genesis to be fruitful and multiply. And you'll see a whole lot of the word fruitful is para, and you'll see multiply, rava, and you'll also see... Seed, which is uh, Zerah. You'll see all three of those words in both of these situations. Um, wherever God is giving the command to Adam and Eve on how to be imagers of him, and then where he's blessing Abraham here in uh, Genesis 17. Abraham fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. Berit is covenant. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Avram, you will be called Avraham. There's a lot of scholarly debate over the meaning of these words, and I can basically sum it down to two paths that seem the most persuasive to me. Um, One is either he's exalted father, and our root there is Av, or he's the person who makes them mighty. And in that case, it's uh, avr is your root and that's aleph uh, bet resh and if it's that then it means um, he makes them mighty and whenever the he is added to make it avraham so it'll go from their mightiness to he makes them mighty Um, and th- this one this interpretation of the name change it has something to it in my book because uh, also the name change for Zari to uh, Zari to Sara that, so that, that Yod end, that E in the end of a word is a first person possessive in Hebrew so Sar is like a prince or princess E means my my princess when it, Zara it becomes more of a general uh It's like more in general Like maybe ruler Or just princess She's princess Rather than my princess Which would indicate Kind of like this broader Not just for this particular people But for all people She's a princess And then Abraham Uh It would be He is like their Protector Or their firmness Their thing of strength Um and then when you add the he in there, um, it, it's that it's for they or them. So it's no longer possessive. It's the direct object. So the, um, or not direct object, but like a third person plural, personal pronoun like they. So um, like maybe giving them strength is his new name. So it used to be their strength, now giving them strength. Um or being their strength. That's one possible interpretation. Um, Alter says this, the meaning of both versions of the name is something like exalted father. So he is looking at this and seeing the root Aleph-Bet and not seeing Aleph-Bet-Resh together as a root. The longer form is evidently no more than a dialectical variant of the shorter one. The real point is that Abraham should undergo a name change. This is interesting we talked about this with names like a king assuming the throne it has been proposed so a lot of times whenever a king was inaugurated he'd get a new name or if a foreign king took over a king he would rename the king and so here uh these scholars propose that it's like he's getting a name change even though the name meaning isn't that different from exalted father just to show like a royal like a hint of something royal to this And that's persuasive to me, too, because, as we'll see later on, this is the first passage where, in God's promises, he mentions kings coming from Abraham's line. As he undertakes the full burden of the covenant, similarly in verse 15, the only difference between Sarai and Sarah is that the former reflects an archaic feminine suffix, the latter the normative feminine suffix. Both versions of the name mean princess. Okay, That's according to Alter. All right, let's continue on. Avram fell face down, and God said, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will your name be called Avram. You will be called Avraham. Um, and oh, I wanted to say one last thing with that. Um, my, uh, I can't remember the name of this scholar who gets the notes. In, in the. By the way, anyone who doesn't have it, you need to get the Cultural Background Study Bible. It's incredible. John Walton, that's his name. John Walton says, Avram means exalted father. Avraham probably means father of many. So he goes from exalted father to father of many. That would make theological sense too. Because he's he's kind of being renamed as a person who um, will bless the nations. And we saw earlier with Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh no, we haven't seen that yet. Later on, we're going to see with Sodom and Gomorrah. He'll advocate on behalf of the nations and try to defend them. Okay. Um I made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. And I, I don't know I don't have the Hebrew right here in front of me, but it's probably that para root where it's be fruitful and multiply. I will make nations of you and kings, there's that Melachi. There's here's our kings now will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come and your descendants in the Hebrew is Serah, which is seeds so in both of these people when when they're getting their jobs with Adam and Abraham there's the multiplication fruitfulness and seed language now this is interesting because a whole lot of the Bible uses garden language to talk about um, God's plan, oh gosh, and I don't mean that song. But God's plan, where humanity and divinity would exist together um, in a garden. And that same language is used of the Messiah. So like, for example, in Isaiah 11, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit will rest on him. Remember, is, we have like spirit, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the counsel of uh, the spirit of counsel and might. Remember the spirit resting over Jesus as a dove, spirit of counsel, and might, spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Um, and also, a lot of times in the Bible, you'll see whenever people are doing, trying to make a false Eden. There's also Edenic language there. So if you look at Isaiah 10, it's talking about these evil people within Israel. See, the Lord Almighty will lop off the boughs with great power. The lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low. He will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. It's talking about judgment on these people who are sinful within Israel. And I'm actually going through Isaiah in my Bible reading right now, and I've started making a list of Edenic language. I'm only in chapter 11 so far, so that's all I'll be able to give you. But in Isaiah 2.2, we have a holy mountain. In Isaiah 2.13, false Eden trees. In Isaiah 4.2, the branch of the Lord. In Isaiah 5.1, he calls Israel my vineyard, and he riffs off of this metaphor. And Jesus does too. Um, If you're reading about his discourses on the Temple Mount, he kind of references Isaiah's vineyard metaphor, but riffs on it. Isaiah 6.13, Holy Seed Remains. Isaiah 10.33, Lofty Trees Felled. Isaiah 11.1, A Shoot from Jesse, like we just mentioned. So there's kind of this tie up between our job as imagers of God, new creation original creation, Messiah, and trees slash fruitfulness and seeds. All that's kind of tied up together, and it makes sense, because if we're being God's examples to the world, then we're like little Edens. We are the trees and the seeds. We're that place where divinity meets humanity. In Paul's letters, he says that we're a temple. And when an ancient person says you're a temple, they don't mean... You know, wear a little ring that means you won't have sex till you're married. Temple means that you are the place where divinity meets humanity. You're the place where people go to meet with God, even if they don't realize it. So if you have a friend who has chaos in their life and they come to you and you're able to bring them peace and pray with them and love on them or let them live with you during a pandemic or whatever it is, you're being a little Eden for somebody. You're being an imager of God. We recently had a very, very... um. We had the opportunity to do something like that. And I'd forgotten about it. And I was going through a tough time where it felt like I wasn't achieving anything in my life. And Hillary and I started praying, God, please show us a sign of some sort of victory because we don't feel like we're doing anything. And then this person who we'd let live with us like a while ago just texted us out of the blue. It, It was incredible. And it was a great reminder that Being a little Eden doesn't necessarily mean Converting everyone you meet Or, you know Owning a giant apologetic study Or, you know Having a TV program Or a million followers on your podcast It means Being a little Eden for someone Giving them the chance To have the peace in their life Be fruitful and multiply That's what it means All those are tied together All tied up with Adam They're all tied up with Abraham okay, we, And we've got to take the Bible seriously When it uses all this fruit language To try to figure out why it's using it It's because it's a matrix of ideas I will make nations of you And kings will come from you So being an imager of God is a, a title of kingship It's a title of authority um, And now we see it tied in with Abraham Kings are going to come from him And who's going to be one of Abraham's You know Great, 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 great grandsons Just go to the genealogies. In the New Testament, you'll see Jesus is. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, you and your seed after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of a covenant between you and me. I remember when I've read this before being like, okay, why does God care if they cut a piece of skin off of their penis? What does that have anything to do with anything? Why is that important? Well, it's because we don't have the ancient world context. The ancient world context, let's... Well, just you know, look at what's what's been happening so far with Abraham's story. He's old, he's infertile, but he's supposed to be like being fruitful and multiplying. If he's supposed to be an imager of God. But he's dead in this way. There's death there. Um, there's death, and the only way that they're gonna be able to bring it to life is through God's work. Um and Paul, when he's trying to connect Christianity with Judaism, uh, or really, that's an anachronistic. The two religions didn't exist back then. Neither one of them did. When So really, it's just first century Judaism, which is different from rabbinic Judaism. Whenever it was the first century Judaism, Paul is trying to connect the way, which was a sect of this first century Judaism, with the rest of the He he was trying to show that the way was always a part of the plan. In his arguments, he talks about the death within Abraham and how God brings it to life and how that's a lot like the resurrection. And so there's there's a little matrix of ideas there where Jesus is getting new life, Abraham's getting new life, and God in the original creation is making creation. There's all these places where the Bible ties in with itself. And God does that through Abraham's penis, you know, because he has sex with Sarah and they have kids. So the, the penis is kind of like, it's, it's very silly in our culture, but it's like this symbol of fertility, a symbol of life. To us, the penis is more a symbol of like sexual pleasure. But to an ancient person, it's children and children are your 401k, And children are your Social Security. Children are your Medicare. Okay? So they're like your lifeline. It seems silly to us in a world full of porn and birth control. But back then, where there's no food and everybody's fighting for their lives, it's like your sense of community, your family. There's shame when you can't have children. It's just very, very different. Here's a article on circumcision by Robert Al- uh not Robert Alter by John Walton. Circumcision was well known in the ancient Near East from as early as the 4th millennium BC, though the details of its practice and its significance vary from culture to culture. Circumcision was practiced in the Near East by many peoples. The Egyptians practiced circumcision as early as the 3rd millennium BC. That's a long long time ago. It's about 1800 years earlier than than when this was, West Semitic peoples—Israelites, Ammonites, Moabites, and Edomites—performed circumcision. Eastern Semitic peoples did not, e.g., Assyrians, Babylonians, Akkadians. Nor did the Philistines, or Aegean or Greek people. And the fact that the Greek people didn't practice it is why the Greeks made fun of the Jews during the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes the Fourth, whenever he occupied Jerusalem and there was a whole lot of pressure for the Jews to circumcise, and they wouldn't, and that's, that's all with the Maccabees and everything. Anthropological studies have suggested that the rite always has to do with at least one of four basic themes. So let's be thinking about this theme, these themes uh, with this story. Fertility, virility, maturity, and genealogy. Study of Egyptian mummies demonstrates that the surgical technique in Egypt differed from that used by the Israelites. While the Hebrews amputated the prepuce, I think that's how it's pronounced, of the penis, the Egyptians merely incised the foreskin and so exposed the gland's penis. Egyptians were not circumcised as children, but in their prenuptial or puberty lines. The common denominator, however, is that it appears to be a rite of passage. I guess it's kind of like a going from one stage to another, giving new identity to the one circumcised and incorporating him into a particular group. Evidence from the Levant comes as early as the bronze figures from Amuk Valley, Tel El Judeide. From the early third millennium BC, an ivory figure in Megiddo from the mid-second millennium BC shows Canaanite prisoners who are circumcised. Southern Mesopotamia shows no evidence of the practice, nor is any Akkadian term known for the practice. The absence of such evidence is significant, since Assyrian and Babylonian medical texts are available in abundance. Skipping on ahead, in light of today's concerns with gender issues, some have wondered why the sign of the covenant should be something that marks only males. Two cultural issues may offer an explanation, patrilineal descent and identity in the community. The concept of patrilineal descent resulted in males being considered the representatives of the clan and the one whom clan identity was preserved, e.g. the wife took uh, took on the tribal and clan identity of her husband. Two, individuals found their identity more uh, in the clan and the community than the concept of self. Decisions and commitments were made by the family and the clan more than by an individual. The rite of passage represented a circumcision marked each male as entering a clan committed to the covenant, a commitment that he would have the responsibility to maintain, on and on. So, the fact that the penis is chosen is because this whole promise has so much to do with Abraham's fertility, his virility, his ability to have children, the... um. And this theme's also seen earlier in Abraham's story whenever it's implied that, that Pharaoh can't really get a hard on because, um, well, we talked about that in the past already. Robert Alter on Circumcision, he says, was practiced among several of the West Semitic peoples and at least in the priestly class in Egypt, as a bas-relief of Karnak makes clear in surgical detail. Avraham, the immigrant from Mesopotamia, E.A. Spiizer notes it would have been a new procedure to adopt in this epi- as this episode indicates. the stipulation of circumcision on the eighth day after birth dissociates it from common function elsewhere as a puberty rite. And the, so it's not like a bar mitzvah event, it's a birth event. And the notion of its use as an apotropic measure is not intimated here. A covenant sealed on the organ of generation may connect circumcision with fertility, that's like what I was saying earlier, and the threat against fertility, which is is repeatedly stressed in the immediately preceding and following passages. The contractual cutting up of animals in chapter 15 is now followed by a cutting of human flesh. Okay, so that was probably way more than any of y'all have ever wanted to sit and listen to somebody talk about Abraham's penis. But... Just you know, ancient world, ancient context. It was basically like a, a symbol of life, and it's a symbol of it's a symbol of that promise that God's making to him, being fruitful, multiplying, blessing the nations, nations coming from him, for the generations to come. Every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household. I'm um, gonna skip that. God also said to Abraham, so after he says all this, Abraham doesn't really respond. God says, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai, call her Sarah. I'll bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. So again, that king language. Abraham fell down. He laughed. Notice that he laughed because Sarai is going to laugh, or I guess Sarah now. She's going to laugh in the next one. Oh, and just so y'all know, Sarah, it's sin resh he, And yeah, I think I already said earlier, it means like prince or princess. Aaron fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? So it's this Semitic practice to say, when you want to really emphasize how impossible something is, you say something that's impossible. And then you say the thing that you're wanting to emphasize is really impossible. Because like the second thing is supposed to be more impossible than the first thing. So he says, Will a son be born to a man of 100 years? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? So he's trying to emphasize that's really impossible. And, Abraham, and so God says nothing back. Because then it just says, And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. So Abraham said, "Can uh, Can we really have a kid? And there's probably a, a moment of silence from God. What do you think God's feeling? I think he's probably mad. Because I think earlier God had said, or it said that Abraham believed him and God credited to him his righteousness. But now Abraham laughs and says, uh, Will we really have a kid? And then God's silent. But here's what Abraham says, continue. If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. So Abraham is wants to trust in the things he can see. God's making this other promise, but Abraham's like, look, Ishmael's already here. Why don't you just bless him? God says, yes, So, yes, I'm going to bless Ishmael. But your wife, Sarah, Sarah, will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. I think that's probably seed language again. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. Here's God already advocating on behalf of the other nations. Ishmael isn't going to go on to have Hebrew children. This is what, in the ancient Jewish thought, all the Arabs came from. And God's still saying he's going to bless them. Because of of Abraham advocating for him. He will be the father of twelve rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant will be with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael... And all those born in his house, uh, household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told him. This is mass circumcision, probably a whole lot of pain in the camp. The only other time I can think of with this much circumcision is way later on when Levy and Simon, uh, they convince these people who raped their sister to all circumcise themselves to be able to join the Jews, but they use it as a ruse to kill them all. There's probably a connection between these two stories. I'm not sure what that is. Um, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that very day. And every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. And just thinking about that other story, I think the connection there is this is a sign of like Abraham's intense, fervent, trust in and obedience to the lord and that later on sign the later on time with Levi and simon is probably to emphasize like how far they've fallen from the original abrahamic example that would be my guess i don't know we'll get there eventually because that's also in genesis but way later on all right that's it for this episode i will see you guys next time Thank you.